0: December the 31st, 2012, New Year's Eve Eve just gone. Many Americans in particular celebrated 150 years since the Emancipation Proclamation from President Lincoln. Now, if you're not up on your American history, a proclamation that he gave um, 150 years previously to to mean that 3.1 million slaves, well, their lives were changed. It gave them freedom. In fact, to remember and to celebrate this fact, this new year just gone. Um, You could see the the original uh, document that Lincoln had signed, his actual signature there. People to come and to see and to remember and to be thankful for freedom that was granted. But cast your mind back, if you can, 150 years previously to 1862, December the 31st known as, as Freedom's Eve or, or the Watch Night. On that night, history tells us, uh, Americans of African descent joined together in many places, in, in churches, in, in gathering places, in, in private homes. Throughout the nation, together they anxiously awaited at midnight news that the proclamation had become law. Many couldn't sleep. You can imagine the tension, can't you? Will it, will it go through? Is it real? But then at the stroke of midnight, it was January the 1st, 1863, and according to Lincoln's promise, all slaves in the Confederate states were were legally free. People still stayed up, though, in churches and elsewhere to, to see whether it was reality. Has freedom actually been declared? Has it worked? And the stories tell us that when the news was received later that day there were prayers and shouts, songs of joy. People fell on their knees, thanked God. They were now men and women rather than slaves, rather than goods. They were people rather than possessions. In some senses now they were, were who they were made to be. In Romans... In our verses for this evening, Paul is pulling together seven chapters of theology, and he says to them, here's what it means for you. Here's what it's all about. Here's what it means that you are now set free. You can be who you were created to be. You're no longer a slave, condemned for your sin. You're free. You're a free person. And yet maybe we say to Paul, well, hang on, I'm not a slave, Paul. I'm not a slave to sin. I'm free. I can do what I want to do when I want to do it. If I may, I think Paul would respond to us by saying, firstly, well, that's not actually freedom, although many think it is. It was Bertrand Russell, the famous philosopher, who said, freedom is the absence of obstacles to the realisation of desires. That means you get what you want when you want it. I think Paul would say, well, if you're honest, you're not free because you're captive to those desires, aren't you? Those passions. You think you're the master and then it turns out, actually, you're the slave. They rule you. You can't stop. Just, Just one more click. One more drink. One more whatever it is for you. We want to change. We, we know things aren't quite right in our lives. But however much we try and do it, we just fall short. It, it doesn't work. We, we've walked out on God, but we're not free now. We're, we're slaves. There's a big part of me that wants to be kinder. But I'm, I'm weighed down by my sin, we say, and I just can't do it. It's part of me that wants to be a better husband, a better friend, a a nicer parent, a harder working employee, a nicer boss. But in our own strength, we just can't do it. We know that sin has this grip on us, and it's tighter than we think. We need to be very clear. Paul is, is saying to us that sin is not out there somewhere it's not what other people do the the murderers, the thieves, the traffickers the sins that the tabloids talk of sin, Paul says, is in here it's in me, it's the shopping trolley we thought about last week it just veers us off away from God towards ourselves do you remember how Paul put it last week? Back in chapter 7 he said, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who is doing it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Whoever we are, there is this tendency we have away from God and towards self. And the law, well, Paul has said it's as if it's a greenhouse. It means that our sin thrives and it flourishes. He says it's as if it's a highlighter. The law means that we know what we're really like because it exposes our sin. Through the law we become conscious of our sin. And then look at verse 2 in our passage for today and see how he describes the law here in verse 2. He says it is from the law of sin and death. What, why sin and death? Well, because we can't keep it and it cannot bring us life. And we say, there we go, I knew it. You, you religious type, religion and church and all that, it's all about you putting people in their place, isn't it? You make them feel guilty, you have control over them, you have power over them, and they do what you want to do. But the news of these verses is that that is utterly wrong. That is not what Paul is talking about at all. I take it, being a slave is a wretched thing to be. Horrible. That's why 150 years ago there was so much rejoicing and, and laughter and thankfulness when freedom came. And it seems to me what Paul is doing in these, these verses and in this chapter is showing us what it means to be free, to no longer be slaves. What it means, 7 verse 6, do you remember? To serve in the new way of the spirits. What it means, 7 verse 24 and 25, to, to begin to be delivered from this body that is subject to death through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I think he wants to say at least two things to us this evening. I'm afraid I forgot my PowerPoint. So, the first one, if you're a note-taker, the first one is this, through Jesus we are no longer condemned. The second one, and we're just going to scratch the surface and fill it in in the weeks to come, the second one is, through Jesus we now have life. Firstly, though, through Jesus we are no longer condemned. And if we're honest, religion and church and all that can very easily fall into the trap of making people feel condemned, of looking down noses at others, of being of the religious type. Paul said it back in chapter 2. Do you remember if you were here right back in probably October, he, he, he told them what they do and he says, here's what you can expect He said this, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment?" Firmly in his horizon are the religious type people who look down their noses at others and judge them. You think you're a law keeper, says Paul. You think you can do it. You confidently look down at others. But you're condemning yourself because you're still in your sin. You will be judged. You cannot keep the law because verse 3 in chapter 8, what the law was powerless to do, God has done for us. We can't liberate ourselves. We can't set ourselves free. But the very heart of the Christian faith is is not about God rewarding good people. It is about God rescuing bad people. If that's a new thought for you this evening, or something that you've not really come to terms with, I'd love you to wrestle with that this week, to get to grips with what that means. Ask the person who brought you, come and chat to me afterwards. But Paul longs for us to be clear on this. It's not about what we do. It is about what God has done that puts us right with him. And what has he done? Do you see it there in verse 3? He's rescued us. And how has he done it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So how he comes in the form of a man. He takes on flesh Yet notice that word there—the likeness of sinful flesh. He comes as one like us, but not completely like us. Not exactly the same. He has a body and a face and hands, and he sweats and he he walks and he eats and he laughs and he cries. But he was different because he was innocent. Where we struggle with our sin, where we try and be kind, but we can't be. Where we know it has this grip on us. Jesus was different. He came in our likeness. And so that qualified him to be a sin offering. And we say, what does that mean? What is this sin offering? Well, Paul says, if you want to understand what it means to be rescued by Jesus... And look back at the Old Testament. And you must understand what's going on there. Try and understand the sacrificial system back before Christ. Do you remember that? God's gracious provision in making it possible for for a a way for a holy God to be restored to an unholy people. He, He rescues them from Egypt. And then how are they sinful, grumbling, unbelieving, complaining, idol-worshipping Israel going to be in a relationship with a God who is perfectly just and awesome and powerful that the two just don't mix. From the very start of the Bible God says, listen to me and obey me and you will live. I know what's best for you, trust me. But disobey me and on the day that you eat of it you will surely die so how are the two going to relate again unholy man holy gods the answer sacrifices just as God promised sin results in death but not the death of a sinner an animal in their place imagine Imagine a man turns up at the temple, the tabernacle, with his hands on a, on a lamb's head. And it's killed, it's slaughtered. There is no doubt why this lamb is dying. It's dying for the sin of the family, the sin of the people. The animal dies, the people don't die. And these sacrifices, they're not just our way of trying to twist God's arm behind his back, if we could just do enough, he would have us back and, and we could be friends again. No, no, this is God's initiative, his gracious provision to bring reconciliation. Sometimes, if people say, isn't it just a bit over the top? Does, okay, hands up, I, I sin, but does it matter that much, Really? Why is such a big deal? Surely to say that we're deserving of death, that's just a bit OTT. Come on, get real. I think the answer is, we've underestimated how big a deal sin is. And we've underestimated how good God is. One of the things I found in becoming a father is that you, you have to come to terms with the fact that your house will, at times, smell. <laughs> maybe it's nappies, maybe it's children, maybe it's hamsters, maybe it's that banana down the back of the sofa, whatever it might be. you just got to get used to it. And when you're in among it the whole time, Don't really notice it, to be honest. And then the grandparents come round. And it's so very embarrassing because because it's obvious that something is a bit whiffy. Something is not quite right. We've learned to live with it. We've got these sort of desensitized noses now. They've not. You can tell by the looks on their faces. And it's as if we're desensitized to sin. It's just not such a big deal to us anymore. We don't really notice it anymore. We've, we've lost our sense of smell. We've, we've lost sight of how good God is. He is perfectly holy and clean and gloriously just. Sin matters. It's a big deal and so Jesus came to die. But also because he loves his people. He, the perfect and pure one, came to, verse 3, to be a sin offering. To die for his people's sin. It's as if he was condemned so that his people would not be. Just notice three brief things with me as we draw to a close on our first point. Firstly, we need to see that God does not just let us off the hook. It's not as if he does a bit of sort of creative accountancy and lo and behold, the the debt has magically gone and our sin has disappeared. That's not at all. It's because Jesus is the true Lamb, the sin offering, and he was condemned instead. If you're a Christian here this evening, then Jesus has taken your condemnation on himself. So you are free. And God is utterly just, so he's not going to punish you and Jesus. You are free. Second thing to notice. It seems to me that we can imply that some are condemned. Thank you, in verse 1, those who are not condemned, it is those who are in Christ Jesus. That's... That in there is an important sort of theological term. It's a way of describing those people who trust Jesus for themselves. It's as if when Jesus dies on the cross on the Friday, they they trust him and they die to themselves. And when he rises again on the Sunday, they're trusting him, so they have new life. They are in Jesus. We must be clear here, as it's a game changer for how we perceive and think about other people. Not everyone can say, there is no condemnation anymore. It is those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're someone here this evening who hasn't trusted Christ, I would urge you to do so. Come come and enjoy the reality of sins forgiven, of, of no condemnation, of freedom, not being a slave to sin anymore, but of being in Christ. And the third one is this, that Christians are not condemned. And it seems to me that often that's easy on paper, but actually hard in reality. It's much harder to work through, if you like, what that means in everyday life. Imagine imagine the 3.1 million slaves we talked about at the beginning. What happens on January the 2nd? 1863 or January the 3rd what do they do with themselves? imagine for many it's it's a struggle to break free from the kind of structures of their past life their, their learned habits how they live, how they exist how they relate, how they perceive themselves who am I now? what do I do? what does it mean to be free? So for the Christian, there can be struggles of feeling condemned. Of knowing it in your head, but still feeling in your heart that you must do something else to deal with the sin that Christ has died for. Maybe things that done in the past that are just weigh heavy on us. Maybe working through the, the outworking of that, the reality of that, sometimes there are consequences for past actions. Well maybe the stuff done in the presence. Maybe it's tomorrow morning. And you've let yourself down again. And you think, is that just one sin too many? One sin too big? And we feel condemned. Paul would love, I think, for this truth to hit home personally for us. If that's you, I'd love you to come back next week and the week after and the week after, and we'll think through more of what it means. To live as a free person. To know what no condemnation looks like. So first point. Through Jesus we are no longer condemned. Second point, as I say, we're just, we're just teeing it up for the weeks to come. Second point though, through Jesus we now have life. And life in the Bible is not necessarily a beating heart or a brain that works or a body that functions. Being alive means being in the relationship that you were made for. Being friends with God. Restored to who you were created to be. I heard it this week um, described rather nicely by a friend as as, it's as if Christians are not just people with donor cards. You know the donor card cards that you have in your wallet to say if I die, if I'm hit by a bus, then you can use my organs for, for other people or for medical research or students or whatever. But the thing is about donor cards, they don't really kick in until you die. Until you kick the bucket. And some people can think like that about the Christian faith. And they say, well, you Christians, it's all about heaven. It's all about what's to come. And the great thing is, you're not going to be condemned. Well done. But, but, but is that it? Is that it? now? And Paul says, no. No, we have life. Now. We're rescued now. Verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's not just as if Jesus died and we're not condemned. And that's great news. It's more than that. You know, through the Holy Spirit we can live now. Today. That's the turning point. That's what will dominate Paul for the next chapter. Some talk about the law here in verse 2 as being rather like the law of gravity. It just happens. The law of sin and death just happens. It's just the way things are. It's the way the universe functions. We sin, we die. We must obey gravity. We throw something up, it comes down. How do you break the law of gravity? I'm not sure you can, really. The internet tells me that NASA, along with Russian scientists, are trying to make an anti-gravity machine, but forget that for the moment. How do you break the law of gravity? It seems to me the only way is by setting up an alternative law that will trump the law of gravity. A stronger law will mean that you have progress. And what is Paul's alternative law? Did you see it? The one that will change things? Verse 2. The law of the Spirit who gives life. That law will change us. Every Christian, every person who is in Christ has God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit who gives life. And what does the life of the Spirit look like? the life that we have now? What does it mean to be free, to be controlled by this new law? What does it mean to be released from a lifetime of slavery? Come back next week.